This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in today to AOA. Boy, it has been a busy week in the markets. We've seen some moves to the upside. We've seen some moves to the downside. Things are all over the place in this first trading week. And there was some news yesterday from the Federal Reserve. All of these things, of course, impact farmers' profitability. Want to get a little more details. So joining me is Joe Camp. He's the Director of Managed Programs at Comstock Investments. Joe, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Hey, Mike, no problem. You said it, an interesting week for markets so far. It certainly is. Before we get into the grains and the livestock side of things, I want to talk about the broader market picture, in particular, the, uh, the, the what we learned yesterday from the Federal Reserve Minutes. They were published yesterday afternoon. Joe, we saw the market's attitude change. What, what happened yesterday? We're still seeing that Fed effect in the market here this morning with stocks lower spooked by what the Federal Reserve came out and said in those Fed minutes. It was a more hawkish tone, more aggressively wanting to control inflation, and they're going to do that by likely pushing up interest rates sooner than normal. They're going to be quicker to taper the asset purchases, those quantitative easing programs that have been in place. And so the effect is just that, that stocks are lower, that interest rates are up, you have pressure on inflationary items like the metals, gold and silver down hard this morning, and the dollar index firmer. That's what we'll watch probably most closely as an influence for our ag and commodity space overall is what's the direction of the dollar. It's been a lot firmer here in anticipation of this central bank uh, sentiment change. But if it keeps going higher, that's going to worry us about uh, us about export potential because that higher dollar does make our goods less competitive to the world buyers. It does. And Joe, you know, I've spoken with a lot of farmers who were in agriculture in the late 70s, early 80s, when the Fed decided to fight inflation. And it wasn't a fun time for a lot of those folks. It, is there a concern that we're starting to see the Fed, the Fed fire against inflation? Could we go back to a, a, a rising spiral of interest rates? Well, that's what we want want to have happen is a sort of stagflation type environment or uh, one where we see the central bank be too aggressive on increasing interest rates because they do that to slow down economic activity, but sometimes it can trigger a recession. And so we don't want interest rates up so high that they're getting in the way of of what we want to do, whether it be at, at the private business level or certainly on the farm. We know how sensitive uh, the ag industry is to interest rates. So it doesn't seem like we're headed there just yet. I think they will be uh, careful to not put the pedal to the metal too fast there on raising rates, but it will be something we be, uh, have you know, lingering concern about. Well, now let's focus over on the grain markets. Joe, we've got a little bit of consolidation here today, it would appear. As you take a look at the corn market, that March contract down below $6. Are we doing anything psychological here? Have we have we started to break this market lower? It could be. Technically, we're not there yet to uh, still have intact this uptrend. Is it still bullish overall for the long-term picture here? But psychological resistance at $6 is important. It's a level where farmers have been selling more grain lately. If anything, we could get to a point where the computers are are selling, the funds are maybe stepping out a bit ahead of next week's crop report, but then so do the farmers shut down those sales now uh, that we've recently made more more cash across the scale here and been sold. And so what we'd expect is that tighter hands still prevail here at the beginning of the year, and we'll still have to see buyers pay up and support what has been strong markets for the grains. And you mentioned farmers have been selling. We went over six bucks there on Monday, saw a lot of farmer sales. Joe, you're the director of managed programs. You work with growers on their cash sales. Ahead of next week's supply and demand report, where do you think farmers should be sitting on their cash sales for old crop? I think we should use the recent strength to move the needle likely past 
half sold for both old crop corn and soybeans. If we're getting up to 65, 75% sold here around this next week's crop report type time frame, then we're going to be really comfortable being patient with the rest and seeing what the spring season has in store for us. If we're more heavily sold on the old crop to take advantage of strong basis premiums for the most part and cash or futures that are still at $6 and above $13.50 for beans, then we're hedging in a way our patients on the new crop sales, which eventually uh, here we can start to look at locking in. We're still by $13 for red November, November 22 soybeans and for uh, December 22 corn above 550. So those are good levels. They are. As you look ahead to the WASD report next Wednesday, Joe, this corn crop domestically, you expect it to grow a little bit? That's a wild card because we know that the USDA can adjust yield in acres. If anything, though, we've seen a recent bias for USDA to take down acres, at least over the past four years. And that could be the case again this year where we have to adjust lower the harvested acreage percentage, some more corn going to silage and some lost acres out in the far northwest corn belt. So we'll see about supply yield. We're starting at a record 177 for corn up there for beans too. And so it might not be that we have to see these crops go any larger. And if anything, we continue to talk about that strong basis to indicate that there's not a huge glut of available supply out there. So maybe we could be on a path of tightening. We are looking for better usage out of the ethanol numbers. A little bit worried about exports here. Uh, but going forward, we could see support to U.S. shipments, uh, demand for exports because of what we'd also expect to see and some cuts to the South American crops. Joe, we had uh, export sales out this morning. Anything notable on there on either corn or soybeans? They were terrible, really. Um, you, you see marketing year lows for several of the commodities. Uh, we had corn sales down 80% from the previous week, but I will note that it included the holidays, uh, both Christmas Eve, last Friday, and then leading up to the New Year's. So it's not good, though, to see these sales numbers be as uh, low as they are, but we'll hope we get some more demand to start to pick up here uh, at the beginning of this new year. That could be the case like it was last year this time when we were, again, talking about the dry weather in Brazil and the potential for maybe U.S. demand to improve, and it did from here. Let's look over at the livestock market very quickly, Joe. We've got the cattle inventory coming up at the end of the month. Do you anticipate to see this cattle herd continue to shrink? Looks like it. What we've seen over the last year, a high uh, cold cow, uh, cows down maybe by more than a million head here, so still tightening it seems to come. And, and that's helped too, not just by the supply side, but demand's been hot. We talk about poor grain exports, but the meat export demand has been phenomenal. So robust demand from the domestic consumer and competing with what is heavier import. Those are all things to keep an eye on. Joe Camp, Joe Camp, rather, the director of managed programs at Comstock Investments. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. And folks, stay with us. When AOA returns, we're going to look at the impact of the waters of the U.S. law on county governments across the country. So stay tuned to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business with than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. 
DTN and Progressive Farmer bring producers the best content in agriculture. Each day, our editors post unique content to our website, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. DTN and Progressive Farmer provide insights throughout the year to questions like, what is the outlook for corn yields in 2021? Will feed prices surge? What about land prices? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? For more intelligence like this, visit DTNPF.com. Recently on Agriculture of America, University of Illinois professor Gary Schnitke has been looking at projected break-evens for the 2022 crop. Gary, what did you find as you look out to this next growing season? As we're looking at uh, total cost, and this would be for producing an acre of corn, we're looking at cost over $1,000 per acre. That's the first time that has happened on average in Illinois, if it does in fact happen in 2022. $1,064 is the precise estimate we're we're looking at in central Illinois, but uh, that is a record level. And that's um, over uh, over $100 higher than the 2021 cost. And it, again, is a record level of total cost of producing corn. And uh, a lot of that's led by fertilizer, but all costs have gone up. For the information important to rural America, join us every day right here on AOA. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. You know, we have been talking a lot in the world of ag media about WOTUS, and we've spoken a lot about the impact it has had, both the law itself and the rewriting of it on agriculture. But there is another segment of society that is being impacted by WOTUS, and that's counties. Joining me today is Adam Pugh. He's the the Associate Legislative Director of Ag and Rural Affairs and also Environment, Energy, and Land Use at NACO, the National Association of Counties. Adam, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Before we get into what's happening with WOTUS, let's talk a little bit about NACO. What what are you guys and what are you doing in Washington, D.C. day to day? Yeah, so NACO is the trade association that represents county governments as entities. Um, All 3,069 counties are represented by us. uh, And we work with our federal partners uh, to remind them of uh, the county seat as part of the intergovernmental partnership. Um, So I spend most of my day working with the EPA, uh, Department of Energy, U.S. Department of Ag, uh, and a handful of other agencies on important issues uh, representing county voice here in D.C. That's fascinating. You represent every county in the country. How how do you do that, given the political uh, uh, gulfs between some of the folks in this country? How can they all come together into one organization? So that is a a great question, and and I think something that is uh, unique to NACO. So we have 10 policy steering committees that represent uh, about 100 plus uh, county commissioners, county supervisors, uh, clerks, judges, whatever their t- title may be from all across the country. Um, so the policy process uh, is set up and established in a way that any NACO member uh, can offer a resolution either at our legislative conference or annual conference. 
and that really dictates our policy. Um, the legislative conference is, is adopted and approved by the uh, board and the annual conference actually uh, goes to our full membership. Any one NACO member can stand, raise their hand and say, hey, I want to object and talk about this uh, policy further. So we really are about building consensus across our county leaders all across the uh, the issue, the uh, country. And the political and, spectrum. That's so cool. And the political spectrum. Yeah. And, and I will also add that uh, a lot of the county leaders I do work with, they may spend their, their day as a Republican or Democrat. However, at the end of the day, um, especially at the county government level, we care about pushing out uh, government responsibility, making sure that roads are taken care of, making sure that the water is up and running, making sure that, that everything else that we do, the health, um, hospitals and 911 data centers and, and everything that counties are responsible for are running. So we do oftentimes put politics aside uh, to really kind of get at the bottom of uh, the issues when we are setting uh, our policy. Can you tell us a little bit about what NACO is looking for as we prepare to rewrite WOTUS once again? Yeah, so counties care about uh, regulatory certainty, um, the impacts on county-owned infrastructure, and then really trying to figure out uh, how to work with our federal partners on a, a changing WOTUS definition. Um, so in the comments that we submitted back in uh, October, we outline uh, the impacts that we believe a, a changing WOTUS definition will have, or a WOTUS definition, not even changing, um, has on county-owned infrastructure. So the impacts on public safety, water conveyances, so the roads and roadside ditches, the flood control channels, the drainage conveyances and culverts, the impacts on uh, the stormwater sewer systems, the MS4s that we call them, uh, the channels and ditches and pipes that lead into that, the green infrastructure and maintenance projects that we manage on a day-to-day -day basis, um, the vegetative buffers, the constructed wetlands, um, as well as the stormwater detention ponds, and then the drinking water facilities as well. Um, uh, many counties across the country uh, own and operate the reservoirs, dams, ponds, canals, um, not so much the large water transport systems, but we do pay very close attention to the Colorado River, the California Aqueduct, and then the Central Arizona Project as well. And then the last thing that, that we are paying very close attention to um, is the water reuse and infrastructure there. Uh, to really build up additional water supply, especially for our folks out in the West that are always kind of facing a drought right now. Um, and the canals and ditches tied to those, the recharge basins and, and ponds as well. Um, so those are the big things that are going to impact us under any WOTUS rule. Um, but that is what we are specifically paying attention to as uh, this administration rewrites it. And as this administration rewrites it, but before they do that, they've reverted us to the pre-2015 ruling, which takes us back to a time when there was actually two different Supreme Court interpretations of WOTUS. How are counties dealing with all of those issues you just mentioned when there's this mismatch in interpretations of the rule they're supposed to operate under? In, in pre-2015, counties often ha had to hire consultants and really pay out of pocket to figure out if the roadside ditch or uh, one of their main water conveyances is jurisdictional under the federal government. Um, so the Rapanos guidance uh, didn't necessarily clarify uh, our infrastructure as much as we would have hoped. And it, it further complicates it. And I think returning back to the pre-2015, a lot of counties across the country will have to go back to uh, hiring consultants. Um, our county engineers, most of, most of the time I do feel comfortable saying they are definitely qualified um, to figure this out and to build the projects, but going through the regulatory process and figuring out those hurdles is often extremely burdensome and, and costly 
uh, for counties. And if they don't do it right, is there the potential, the way things look right now, before this Biden administration, new WOTUS comes into effect, is there the potential they could be fined for not being in compliance for the pre-2015 rule if they were in compliance under the 2017 Navigable Waters Protection Rule? It would be more that they would be sued. Oh. And, and not being, or to be not compliant or un non-compliant under the WOTUS rule. Okay. Um, so that is, I think, the biggest fear is uh, making a uh, determination or working with our federal partners um, and having to go through that process does slow down our infrastructure building. Um, and also it, it impacts our ability to respond to flooding, um, something that we have seen across the country, especially pre-15, um is the army corps didn't necessarily apply the certain exemptions equally across uh across the u.s so having to go back um and do that is going to impact us and uh really kind of seeing what the jurisdictional uh, determinations coming out of the army corps and epa will be uh will be interesting for the next year or two until uh the new rule comes out so until we get that new rule and they're being written, it sounds like you guys have been asked to be a part of this conversation. Is that true? Or are you getting much reception to the NACO ideas on Capitol Hill? Capitol Hill, yes. Um, so we, we definitely do have uh, some allies on the Hill that support um, our stance on this. And the EPA has uh, been more than happy to meet with us um, during this process. So we as part of the intergovernmental partnership, um, we do uh, have kind of the, the fortunate being of um, a partner. We are privy to certain meetings that other trade associations uh, might not be. So uh, under the executive order 13132 uh, for federalism, um, if the EPA is going to change a uh, regulation that's going to have a major financial impact um, or uh, directly impact uh, local authority, they are required to meet with us uh, before uh, the rulemaking. Okay, so there is a little bit of a heads up because this would be a massive rewrite. Adam, as you look out over this next year and a half, what are some of the major things you hope the folks at EPA listen to as they're rewriting this rule? So I think one of the things uh, that I alluded to earlier, county leaders definitely want regulatory certainty. Um, so we are focused on providing services and maintaining uh, public and water quality. The health and well-being and safety of our residents and communities are top priorities uh, for us. And to fulfill these responsibilities, we do need regulatory certainty. So we can't afford to bounce back um, every two to three to four years, depending on the election, um, to really take a drastic change on a WOTUS definition. Adam Pugh from the National Association of the Counties, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today here on AOA. Thanks, Mike. And folks, stay tuned. We'll be talking to Tanner Emke about how the dairy market looks as 2022 gets underway. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Each and every day, DTN and Progressive Farmer editors are posting unique, original content to their website at DTNPF.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day -day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom, covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crops, cattle, equipment technology, and more. You'll find innovative topics like, would you plant soybeans in December? Experiments look at the possibility of boosting yields with early planting. Want to save time? Learn how through autonomous machinery systems. Will there be a surge in feed prices in 2021? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? The editors of DTN and Progressive Farmer are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 
Well, markets are reacting today to the release of the Fed minutes, signaling their intention to raise interest rates sooner rather than later. The 10-year treasuries fell to a new low overnight, which is a new recent high on rates. The prospect of higher rates weighed on all of our markets. Now, we also see a little more follow-through of the soybean sell-off. Once again, beans have been our leader to the downside. Wheat also now our leader to the downside. In fact, wheat is down double digits, kind of taking the lead here in the grains to the downside. Now, we did get a soybean sale announced this morning to Mexico of 102,000 metric tons for this marketing year. Weekly export sales and shipments, although we have to take them with a grain of salt with it being the week between Christmas and New Year's, we saw marketing year lows in wheat, soybean, soybean meal, and oil on the weekly export sales and shipment report. Overall, grains have a weaker tone across the board, with cattle futures also continuing their liquidation and sell-off with hogs trading higher. Right now, March core down two and a half, five ninety nine at three quarters. May core down two and a quarter at six and a half. January soybeans two and a quarter lower, thirteen eighty two. March beans down seven, thirteen eighty seven at three quarters. January bean meal down a dollar forty a ton, four twenty two seventy. January bean oil down fifty seven points at fifty eight seventy five. March Chicago wheat sixteen and a quarter lower, seven forty four and a half. March Kansas City winter wheat down sixteen at seven seventy one. March spring wheat, Minneapolis down 17 and a quarter at 931. February live cattle, 35 lower, 136.90. April down 47, 141.47. January feeder cattle down 62, 161.50. March down 82, 165.35. February hogs up 112, 83.40. April hogs up 45 at 89.12. Crude oil up $1.85, 79.70. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen. 180 over 111 and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92 and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100 and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it, or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. Head to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Hello, folks, and welcome back. We are Moving our way through AOA today, it is incredible to me how much that WOTUS changing can impact our county governments. And, uh, you know, Adam didn't really have enough time to get into some of the details, but the costs for some of these counties, particularly in rural counties who have a lot of water to move, can be substantial, especially as things are flip-flopping back and forth. So we'll continue to keep an up on, uh, an eye on that issue. WOTUS, of course, definitely impacts agriculture. Here in just a minute, we are going to be talking with Tanner Emke. Tanner is over at CoBank. He is one of the researchers in their knowledge exchange department. He recently authored a new outlook of the dairy market. And we're going to talk to him about that in just a bit. One of the key thoughts that Tanner had is that milk supplies are going to tighten in 2022. That is a big change. Tanner, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, great to be with you. You know, I, I read that first paragraph of your report, milk supplies will tighten in 2022. Tanner, it has been a long time since the dairy industry has been able to say that milk production continues to grow. What are the factors that lead you to think we are going to see fluid milk production uh, tighten here in this next year? Well, there's a lot of things going on, uh, not only just here in the United States, but uh, globally as well. I mean, this is a story that uh, dairy farmers have been struggling with. Indeed, every, all farmers uh, in uh, production agriculture, especially animal agriculture, have been struggling with uh, high feed costs 
but it's just not feed. Uh, it's this inflationary environment, uh, really, where you're seeing high labor costs. If you can find the labor, uh, and if you're a dairy farmer and you want to build uh, a new barn or a new parlor, it's going to cost you a lot more than it used to just because of higher stainless steel prices, higher concrete prices, higher lumber prices, you name it. Uh, the cost of expansion uh, is uh, so high these days. Uh, and then when you do put the do fill the uh, barn with those animals, you got to have you got to pay more for labor and you got to pay more for trucking and freight. Uh, so it's a whole host of uh, things that have culminated in uh, the global dairy herd shrinking. Uh, and we've seen that here in the U.S. Uh, our uh, cow numbers have fallen uh, over 100,000 uh, over the past several months. But it, you look around the world, you look at uh, Europe, you look at uh, New Zealand, and their numbers have fallen even more than ours. And so that is tightening uh, the global milk supply, and that is uh, really what's driving uh, this uh, shift in uh, dairy product pricing and milk prices uh, globally. Now, ultimately, uh, this is going to result in uh, farmers expanding uh, again and adding new cows to the herd, but that takes time. There's a fairly significant lag uh, between high uh, prices and a growth in, or expansion in the dairy herd. It's going to take at least uh, five or six months before we get there. So probably looking towards the back half of 2022 uh, when we start to see a return uh, to a growth phase and start to see uh, milk production come back up. With all of the disruptions happening, Tanner, across the industry, and, and you hit them, it's inflation, it's feed costs, it's supplies, it's labor, all of that stuff is changing. Where do you expect to see uh, milk prices, class three prices, hang out here in the short term? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Just here in the last few days, we've seen uh, prices get really uh, interesting, we'll say. Uh, we, we've just kind of seen the prices really get uh, well above uh, the $20 handle. I would say, I just want to back up for a moment. Let's talk about class four. Uh, class four milk prices, I think, is really what's going to be driving the bus here. Uh, and that is because of, of this tightening of milk supplies. Uh, what gets cut uh, from uh, processing is butter and nonfat dry milk. And look at butter prices. They're just going vertical. Uh, so I think... Uh, we want to take a look at what's going on with class four. How much of a premium is that going to be uh, to class three? And that's going to be underpinning uh, those class three prices. I think we're going to be in that uh, definitely in this uh, over $20 range for quite some time. That's 20 to 23, maybe $25. It kind of depends upon what's going to happen globally. Uh, also uh, we're seeing uh, near record or record cheese prices. So, uh, I think there we, we've got a story that we're going to see some pretty strong uh, prices going forward. And that's really, I think, going to be lifted, uh, especially here in the United States, by class four. Tanner, I, I don't claim to be a dairy market expert. I have a tremendous amount of respect for the work that dairymen and women do across the country. But keeping up with that market can be a, a challenge. It's it's very multifaceted. Class four, you mentioned that's butter and that's powdered milk. That's what makes up that class's pricing. That's right. Uh, class four is uh, butter and uh, nonfat dry milk, uh, typically. And then a lot of that uh, production is focused or is, is out west, uh, the southwest and on California. And we all know the story there. Uh, we've had extreme drought. We've had extremely high feed costs, uh, in, especially in places like New Mexico, where they've got a, a very weak milk basis uh, because of this culmination of high feed costs and a weak base uh, uh, pricing on your basis uh, in that region, why we've seen the biggest loss uh, in the dairy herd uh, in that part of the U.S. And that's where that's going to ultimately flow into a, a, a tighter uh, amount of milk uh, available for butter and uh, uh, nonfat dried milk production. Tanner, in your chart, you've got, or in your uh, report, rather, you've got a chart showing the, the price of Chinese raw milk on a weekly basis. And ever since 2019, that chart has been climbing. We've seen substantial gains on milk prices in China. I think back to the last time China stepped into the dairy import market in a big way, 2014, 2015. That drove prices to a record. Is China going to be that big of a force in the dairy market in 2022 again? I think they're going to have to be uh, because you know, China is, uh, has really emphasized uh, dairy consumption uh, to be a, uh, 
from the from the nutritional aspect of fighting COVID, uh, and they've emphasized that in their country. Uh, at the same time, uh, they want to make uh, the cost of raising children ultimately uh, lower, and so they're trying to lower infant formula prices. Uh, while at the same time uh, emphasizing adult nutrition uh, because of COVID. Uh, and then you've got, you know, skyrocketing uh, raw, raw milk prices in the country. Now, we have seen here recently uh, our dairy exports to China slow down. Uh, but I think given the, uh, the fundamentals here of very high uh, prices within China, very high prices and de- uh, declining uh, milk and uh, dairy product uh, production, uh, globally, the Chinese are going to have to come back to the U.S., uh, and I think that's going to mean uh, fairly strong exports in 2022 for our dairy products, especially for the powders. And I think uh, although they they stepped away from uh, imports here recently, I think uh, in October their imports were down 19% uh, year over year, uh, they're going to be coming back to the table but just because of the shortage uh, globally. Tanner, you know, I hear you talking about these prices, 20 plus, 23, 25 in the various classes of milk. And those are those are big prices. Those are, you know, close to record setting prices. But of course, that doesn't look at the cost side of the ledger. I don't want to fall into the trap of of just looking at the income. We've got to look at the expenses as well. What do you figure the average dairy farmer needs in America here for class three milk to be break even? Do we have a good industry average? Well, there's so many different production regions around uh, the country uh, with all the different federal orders um, and uh, the pricing formulas. It's going to be different uh, in each region. So, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a difficult question to answer because of the diversity of uh, special production models, say out west, out in California, for instance. A lot of that production model is based on buying feed uh, rather than growing it yourself, whereas out of the Midwest, uh, farmers typically uh, grow their own feed, and so are therefore a little bit more insulated uh, from feed costs. So the variation in models here, I think, uh, you know, complicates the situation. But I, I think here, though, there is a there's a positive story we can tell, and that is that uh, it appears though feed prices are moderating. And so to the question of what is the break even, uh, it's definitely going to be higher uh, because of the elevated uh, cost of expansion with as I mentioned earlier, uh, adding new parlors or adding new um, barns, uh, and then at the same time growing your herd, uh, heifer prices are coming up. And so, uh, you know, because the the break-even is coming up around the country, that's going to require a much higher uh, milk price. And I think uh, right now farmers are coming back uh, slowly into production, uh, or excuse me, into profitability, and we're seeing that borne out in some of the numbers out there. You know, farm sales have slowed down. Uh, as I mentioned, heifer prices are coming up. And so that is a sign that a lot of farmers are indeed coming back into profitability and are preparing for expansion down the road. Uh, I hesitate to say that all farmers are back in uh, the black, uh, yet we've got a ways to go, I think, for some farmers. Tanner, domestic demand for the past several years, it seems like cheese has been the driver. As the pandemic comes to an end and people go back to work, do you, do you still see cheese as being the real driver of uh, domestic milk pricing? Well, I think we're seeing a shift, and uh, a lot of that is uh, over to uh, protein, and I mean uh, specifically whey protein. Uh, when you compare whey prices with cheese prices, uh, they ha- there has become there's a a, a new uh, relationship developing here where processors are now processing for the whey because that is the, the higher value product and whey prices, especially with the higher value, higher protein products like WPC80, WPI, uh, those high protein products are really coming up in price, whereas cheese prices over the past quarter have been a little flat. So I think during the pandemic, there's been a shift eating more, more more healthy foods and high protein diet and the shift is really focusing over the whey and I think that's going to be more of a driver going forward. High protein is a way to stay healthy. Great advice. Tanner Emke from Kobeck, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. When we return, we will look at the new Pace crop insurance supplement that NCGA has been working on. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america don't go away more aoa coming right up vision loss 
is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference, bite by bite. Oh, nice engine. Supercharged? Yep. High porosity and aggregates? Yep. Porous medium for gas exchange? Uh-huh. Microbial catalytic potential and repository for carbon and nitrogen? Check, check, and check. Oh, man, that is good under the hood. And to think I used to be impressed with hammies. So, when was the last time you looked under the hood at your farm's production engine? At your soil? Is it as healthy and productive as it can be? Stop by your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out and unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by NRCS and this radio station. Today, more than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's, and more than 11 million family members and friends serve as their caregivers. While researchers are working tirelessly to end Alzheimer's and all other dementia, the number of people living with Alzheimer's is expected to more than double by 2050. The toll of the disease is monumental, and its devastation affects family, friends, and especially caregivers. No one should face Alzheimer's and dementia by themselves. If you or someone you know is struggling to provide care to a loved one, please share this message. You are not alone. Free help and resources are available 24-7. To talk with an expert and obtain disease-related information, care and support services, Call 800-272-3900 or visit the Alzheimer's Association website at alz.org. You are not alone. Recently on Agriculture of America, we had a couple important reports released by the USDA. We saw their cattle on feed report come out. We also had the quarterly hogs and pigs report come out. Dennis Smith from Archer Financial Services, not many surprises. Not many surprises. The uh, the marketing number was a good solid number at 105. One extra marketing day. Placements were at 104. Looking forward or, or looking at the reaction to this, I would think you should see some bull spread activity. In other words, the front end of the market, I would think, would be a little stronger than the back end of the market. We're pivoting or we're looking for the, the next cash market, 135 last week. There's talk of uh, maybe it'll be much closer to 140 when it gets established later this week. For the information important to rural America, join us on Agriculture of America.
You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks so much for tuning in to the show today. You know, we've covered a lot of ground, whether we're talking markets, whether we're talking policy implication, or we're talking dairy demand around the country. There's always something happening in agriculture. Before we wrap the show today, I want to talk about another thing that just dropped. This was released yesterday. This has been a project by the National Corn Growers Association, the Illinois Corn Growers Association, Ag Analytics Technology Company, and the Meridian Institute. They have been working together to come up with a plan to provide coverage, crop insurance coverage to growers who are split applying nitrogen. This program that uh, that USDA just released, it's through the the Risk Management Association at USDA. This program is called the Post-Application Coverage Endorsement or PACE, P-A-C-E is, you know, we love acronyms, of course, when we've got stuff coming out of Washington, D.C. And I'm fascinated by this program as we continue to see our industry push for the four R's, right time, right placement, right nutrient, you know, in the right space. That is uh, hugely important as agriculture paints a picture or at least helps paint the picture for the public of our industry doing right by, in particular, water quality, keeping nitrogen and nitrates out of the water supply. Split application is a good way to do that. The challenge that that folks were finding was that if they are pursuing a split application approach in their in their corn ground, and that's all this program works for right now is corn. This is the very first year it's been offered. But the idea is what happens if I'm planning on a split application? That's my, my growing plan for the summer. And the weather's great. I get my first application on and then I don't get my second applied due to but, you know, whatever reason. Could be rainfall, could be lack of uh, access to the field. That's where PACE comes in. So the way this program works, you sign up through it just uh, through your, your crop insurance salesperson, just like you would any other uh, product endorsement, and it works as supplemental coverage for yield protection, revenue protection, and uh, revenue protection with the harvest price exclusion. All of those programs can come with pace. Now, there are a lot of questions about this program. As I mentioned, it was literally just announced yesterday. They've been developing it for some time. As of today, PACE is available only for non-irrigated corn, um, grain type, so not going into silage. It's not, uh, and it, it only works for non-organic corn in select states. And it makes sense. They're rolling this program out first in the heart of the corn ground. And they do say that high-risk land is not eligible for coverage under PACE. There will be a premium subsidy for PACE, and that is going to vary just like you'd expect to your coverage level based on when you buy the uh, the endorsement. But this is going to provide you with additional coverage in the event you cannot utilize or cannot get access to that post-nitrogen application, and it impacts your yields. So how does this work? When you're in there buying crop insurance at the at the closing time, you must elect PACE. You've got to you know voluntarily choose to take it if your county is one of the covered counties. You get to pick your coverage level just like you would anything else. Then you have to provide the intended split of nitrogen. And there are a couple of different ways you can prove it because that is obviously crucial. They say purchase receipts or similar documents that show your name the date of purchase, the type of fertilizer purchased, and the brand name, if that's applicable, of the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium content, the total amount of fertilizer purchased. You've got to have all of that information together, and this is how you're going to prove your your pre and your intent for your post-application. And then you can also, of course, bring in your production plans, records of planned nitrogen purchases, any precision ag data that you've got, or any other relevant records can be all pulled together and presented to uh, to qualify for this program. And basically what this is going to do, it's going to indemnify you based on your approved yield, the share, and your PACE coverage, and then the loss factor when you're physically prevented from post-applying nitrogen due to a loss of the field, a covered loss of the field, I should specify. And uh, this is very, very cool. It's fantastic to see private companies and groups getting together thinking and strategizing about what might be necessary here in the coming years as we show that agriculture farmers do care about the environment. And 
caring for the environment carries risks. You know, one of the risks of split application is that only half your nitrogen or a percentage of your nitrogen is on at any given time. You've got to have that weather window open to get that second, third application on, however it is you're making it work on your operation. So just one more quick update. This provides coverage for the projected yield loss when producers are unable to apply that second application during the V3 to V10 corn growth stage due to field conditions caused by weather. So that's the important thing to remember there with pace. If you are applying split applying nitrogen, if you're going more to a spoon fed crop issue, be sure to have a conversation uh, with your advisor about this product. Currently, it's available in Illinois, some counties in Indiana, I believe most of the counties in Iowa, several counties in Kansas, Michigan, Minnesota, Nebraska, North Dakota, Ohio, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. All of those states have counties that do qualify for this program. Uh, you can check out the full list of counties the USDA has released it. We will share that and the press release for this program on our Twitter page. You can find us on Twitter at AOA underscore talk show. We're there. We're always tweeting about the show. That's where I like to tweet out supplemental information. If you hear us talking on the program with an author or somebody who has written an interesting piece, I will always be sure to tag it to our story on Twitter. So if you're curious, hey, I want to read this in a little more detail, or in the case of this, if the USDA is rolling out a big program with a lot of details, you've got to know, you can find it right on our Twitter page at AOA underscore talk show. Do be sure to also find us on Facebook. We're there as well, trying to grow our network. One of the things Mike Adams brought to this program was a deep network built from years of experience in agriculture. I'm still building that. And you listeners are going to be a big part of that. Let's connect. Get to know me. Find us on social media at AOA underscore talk show on Twitter, or just search for Agriculture of America on Facebook, and we will pop right up. Folks, thanks so much for tuning in today. Tomorrow, we're going to talk with Mike Steenhook about what's coming in the world of soy transportation. Arlen Suderman will join me. We'll dig in deep on what's going on with the markets and so much more to come on AOA. Thanks for tuning in, folks. We'll talk to you tomorrow. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm Radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Considering an online pharmacy? Explore BeSafeRx to find useful information and resources to help you purchase medicines safely online. A safe online pharmacy requires a doctor's prescription, has an address in the United States, has a licensed pharmacist, and is licensed by a state pharmacy board. It's best to stay away from online pharmacies that don't meet these criteria. Discover more helpful tips and resources at BeSafeRx. Go to fda.gov slash BeSafeRx.